if you've been here coming a while, you'll know many of you that uh, just a couple of months ago, I had the amazing opportunity to travel to Africa, a country called Tanzania, and uh, I was there at the uh, invite of an organization called World Vision, and uh, together uh, with some other pastors and leaders, I got to climb to the top, hike to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, and then I got to go into a community in Tanzania and see the work that they're doing there, uh, helping deliver clean water and wells to, to that area, and it was fantastic, and we had such a great time, and we packed so much in in that short 10-day trip uh, that there wasn't time to do one thing. And it was killing me because I have major FOMO. I hate missing out on things. And I knew that where we were staying, we were just a very short, probably less than an hour's drive from some of the biggest game reserves in Africa, some of the most famous places to go on safari a dream of mine. I've always wanted to do that, to go on safari. And I knew we were so close, but there just wasn't time to do it. And it was killing me because I knew that we could just jump in a car and, and before we knew it, we'd be out in the wild seeing giraffes in their natural habitat, seeing these beautiful, majestic creatures that we would drive through and see zebras. Yes, that's right. They're called zebras. Uh, I know that you seem to be under the impression that they should be called zebras, but no, it's zebras because the first letter of the word zebra is Z, okay? So I could have seen some zebras, but most awesome of all is I could possibly have got to see in real life, in its natural habitat, the king of the jungle himself, the lion. How amazing that I was that close to being able to see lions in the wilds. They are one of the most fierce animals that you can find. They are the top of the food chain. And yet the crazy thing is, as fierce and as wild as they are, there are people in this world whose profession is to tame the lion. We have people who are called lion tamers. They take this, this fierce beast and with just a whip and a chair, they have it fully under control, which I've never really fully understood. This thing eats zebras for breakfast, okay? But you have a chair and it's all over. He's like, dude, he's got a chair. Back up, okay? This guy, I mean, how, how the chair was ever used as a tool to help tame lions, I will never understand. But um, I'm not sure if you still see it as much today. There were circuses and shows in Las Vegas where you could go and you could see all of that power and fierceness and wildness of the lion harnessed, tamed by a lion tamer. Here at Connect for a few weeks now, we've been talking about uh, something we've called the fruits of the Spirit. And we get this phrase from a, a verse in the New Testament, a guy by the name of Paul who wrote a large part of the New Testament. He was writing to a church and he was talking about these things called the fruits of the Spirit. I'm gonna read the verse and then I'll explain why he was talking about this. In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, he said, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul was saying, there are these, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, then um, you, you, it's almost like you make a contract with God. And to seal God's side of the deal, he gives you the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is like a seal of that commitment of that relationship that you and God now have through Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, he actually, um, it dwells inside of us and we can use it as a source of power in our daily lives. We can connect with God. But the best thing of all is the Holy Spirit produces these fruits in us. So we have access just in our own personalities to things like love, joy, peace, and patience. But because of the Holy Spirit, we can say, God, with your help, I can love better. I can experience joy better. I can have more patience in trying circumstances. And today, I want to talk about the fruit of self-control. He talks about this fruit of the Spirit called self-control. You see, like a lion tamer, Self-control is discovering how to tame the wild beast that lives inside every single one of us. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, we could probably identify uh, areas of our life where that beast displays itself. The wild beast can come in many forms. Here's just a, a few examples. Lust, anger, greed, drunkenness, violence, hatred. And there are many, many other areas of our life where we know that um, out of control, there are some things in our life that, 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 that we don't like to see. And, and like a lion tamer, we want to be able to control that. And Paul's saying that, that one of the fruits of the Spirit to help you in that is the fruit of self-control. Self-control is making that decision to abstain from acting on some of those desires. I'm actually going to illustrate to you this morning what self-control looks like, a physical example of what self-control looks like. Some of you may have heard of Cadbury's chocolate. You'd have heard of it because it is, it is the best chocolate in the whole wide world. Now, I know you'll say that I'm biased, but no, it's scientifically proven to be the best chocolate in the whole wide world. I don't know if that's true, but I think it is. Cadbury's just makes this amazing milk chocolate, and you can get it in England, and I love it. But um, not only did they make this amazing milk chocolate, they said, you know what, let's take our amazing milk chocolate, and let's create a bunch of different varieties of candy bars that have our milk chocolate in it. So Cadbury's now produced this incredible selection of crunchies and flakes and caramels and double-deckers and all these incredible chocolate bars. And whenever I go to England, I always take at least one carry-on bag that's completely empty because I know coming home, it's going to be full of these. So to illustrate self-control this morning, I was in England recently and I went into my stash and I brought with me this morning a Cadbury's flake. I want to tell you, everything in me right now wants to open this and eat this because it is amazing. But I'm going to use self-control. I'm going to set it right there. It's going to remain untouched for the entire message. And that's going to be the greatest example you're going to see this morning of self-control, that I'm not going to eat that flake. Now, last week, if you were here last week, we actually talked about gentleness. And uh, I actually think that these two go really well together because sometimes we're under this misunderstanding when we read um, the New Testament, we read the Bible, and it talks about gentleness. We think of that as something that's weak and meek and mild. But actually, we learned last week that the true definition of gentleness, as Paul was talking about it, was gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is knowing that we have all this strength and all this power to do things, but, but we choose to give it to God and say, God, I want you to take control of this area of my life because out of control, I can harm other people. I can say things, I can do things that can cause harm. So, so gentleness is saying, God, help me keep that strength under control. Self-control 
goes really well hand in hand with gentleness because we're going to learn more this morning of how we keep these desires, these, these things under control. So um, when Paul was writing this originally in the New Testament to his audience, his, his letter would have been written in Greek because that was the language they spoke at that time. So the word that we, re, we translate as self-control, it was a Greek word that was enkratia, enkratia. And uh, every now and again here at Connect, I'll, I'll talk about what the Greek word was and then I'll translate it. And you might think, Dave, I don't need to know. <laughs> I'm not going to go out this week and speak any Greek, okay? I may order a gyro at uh, Curry's, but I'm probably not going to speak much Greek or use much Greek in my life this week. But here's why I like to sometimes share these words and their meanings. Because oftentimes, um, the Greek language especially, it had multiple different words for what we have just one word for. For example, love. There were several different words in the Greek language for love. And all of them had a little bit of a different meaning for the context in which they were used. We have one word. What that means is that when I look into my beautiful bride's, Casey's eyes and say, I love you, she knows that I love her. But if I happen to say it at Red Robin, in the very next breath I could say, I love this Whiskey River barbecue burger, because <laughs> it is awesome. <laughs> And, and Casey needs to know that when I say I love the burger, it's a different kind of love. I mean, I love her just a little bit more than I love that burger, okay? So I want her to know that. The burger's amazing, but I do love her more. But I only have one word to describe that. So that's why sometimes we'll talk about these Greek words so you can understand the context. So this Greek word, it literally means a state of power over something where one holds power over one's own passions and instincts. Sometimes that Greek word um, is translated in, in other versions of the Bible as temperance. So you may see the word temperance instead of self-control. But here's why I'm going into all this detail about this Greek word. Because this, this particular Greek word, the root of it, is used in other sentences in the New Testament. One of the sentences, one of the verses it's used in, I'm going to read now. And I'm hoping that as I read it, you'll understand what self-control really looks like and what the people who Paul was speaking to in his time, what they understood self-control to mean. So it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. All athletes are disciplined in their training. That word disciplined, it's that same Greek word that's used for self-control. So Paul's talking about it here in the context of an, an athlete who's disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline, there's that word again, my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So Paul's talking here about his desire to be, to be the best uh, preacher, communicator he can be. And he's using a super practical analogy that he knew that everyone would understand. Because everyone had been to these games. They'd been to these ancient Greek games where they'd seen these athletes prepare and fight and run and race. And, and it was a huge thing that went on in Paul's day. So when Paul talked about discipline, straight away, people are picturing the athletes that they used to see in the arenas and the coliseums. 
In fact, you can read historians who wrote stuff about um, what was going on in the world back in Jesus' time, back in Paul's time. They explain what these races were like, what these athletes were like. This is one historical document talking about it. The candidate for the races was required to be 10 months in training and to practice in the gymnasium immediately before the games under the direction of judges who had themselves been instructed for 10 months in the details of the game. The training was largely dietary. Epictetus says, thou must be orderly, living on spare food, abstain from confections. I'd be in trouble, there's a confection right here. Abstain from confections. Um, make a point of exercising at the appointed time in heat and in cold, nor drink cold water, nor wine at hazard. Horace, another historian, said, the youth who would win in the race hath borne and done much. He hath sweat and been cold. He hath abstained from love and wine. This is what discipline looks like. So when Paul was listing those fruits and he got to self-control, that Greek word in Paul's audience would straight away bring this picture in their minds. When, when Paul's saying you need self-control, they were picturing the kind of self-control, the kind of discipline that these athletes had, that they knew. They may have been friends with some of them. They at least had seen them in real life. And they knew that there were months and months and months of training, dietary restrictions, all these things. That's what self-control looked like. Now, this is going to come as a surprise to many of you here this morning because I don't think I've ever told anyone this, but I'm actually a member of a gym called CrossFit. I know, yeah, it's, I, I, don't think, I can't remember if I've ever mentioned that or not before. Uh, they meet at the end of this building, uh, a great gym. Uh, I go there on a regular basis. And some of you now, having found this out for the very first time, are like, oh, that makes sense. Because just looking at your physique, you're thinking that, that just wouldn't come naturally. Obviously, a lot of work has been done to get uh, that, that kind of physique. But I am a member of CrossFit, and uh, I enjoy going there. It's, uh, I enjoy the exercise, and it's clearly working. It's clearly working because yesterday morning, uh, there was an event here in town, uh, a fundraiser uh, in honor of Coach Brown. If you remember Coach Brown from the high school, he passed away from uh, a brain cancer. So every year they have this event in his honor. And, and one part of the event is a 5K run. And I signed up to do that 5K run yesterday morning. It was hot and miserable, but I'm like, I'm getting out there. I do CrossFit. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to run. And I thought I did pretty well. I finished the race, and I was pretty happy. You know, I ran the whole way. Um, but I was a little disappointed right at the end because where the finish line was, it was right there by um, five points, to the side of five points. And to get to the finish line, you kind of came along uh, between central and five points there, and then you turn left to run towards the finish line. And there was a radio station there, 105.7, and one of the DJs was like the commentator. He was announcing the runners as they came across. And as I turned the corner to approach the finish line, I heard him say, no joke, he said, wait, there's still some more runners. <laughs> there's another one coming. Here he is. So clearly, what he was communicating to the radio audience and everyone there in person is, stop packing up your cars. I know you're all leaving. I know it's been like 20 minutes since we've seen a runner, but there's another one. Let's hold on. Let's, let's wait for this guy. I'm like, come on. I wasn't the last runner. 
there were other runners behind me, okay? There was at least uh, the paramedic who'd been following me for the last mile with his um, paddles out. He was behind me, so. Uh... But here's the thing. <laughs> I was gonna say I love running. I don't know, I hate running. But I do like going to CrossFit. I enjoy going regularly through the week. But if I'm totally honest, there are some mornings where it's time to wake up and I find myself laying there in bed thinking, you know what? I could probably just go tomorrow. Have this little kind of conversation, you know, maybe if I go tomorrow, maybe I'll just do a little bit extra work. And I was talking to a friend of mine about that this week, and he was saying, I'm the same. He goes, I lay there in bed, and I come up with all these reasons not to get up and go to the gym. He said, I managed to convince myself that if I go tomorrow instead, I'll just do more exercise. And he says, what I found is if I can just get my right leg from under the covers and my right foot to touch the floor, it's going to happen. He's like, I'm laying there. That's the biggest battle because once my right foot has touched the floor, he's like, that's it, I'm committed. Then I get out of bed and I get ready and, and off I go to the gym. And I loved that idea uh, that he shared because I think self-control, that idea of discipline, self-control, it's not necessarily about being in the gym. I think self-control is just making that commitment to get your right foot out of the bed, to start the journey to say, I'm at least gonna try and do this right. Because I think some of us, as we're talking about self-control, we might look at situations in our life, maybe relationships in our life, and it's like, just like this massive mountain. And we think, I'm never gonna get control of that area of my life. I'm never gonna get control of that situation, so why even bother? But the reality is, we all have a choice. And that choice this week, I think for some of us, will be just to get your foot out from under the covers and take that first step. So what I want to look at this morning, just briefly, is a, a story in the Old Testament. It's a great story about a man by the name of David. Many of you are familiar with David. He started out as a shepherd boy, and then uh, one day Israel was under attack from their enemies, and, and there were, uh, the enemies, the Philistines, they had this huge giant by the name of Goliath, and none of the soldiers in Israel were brave enough to go up against Goliath. And then this, this little boy, this shepherd boy, hears about it. He says, well, I'll take him on. He was crazy. But he has such a strong belief in God, that God was the God of Israel, and that he would protect and stand with them, that he just believed, hey, it's nothing to do with how big he is and how small he is. It's all to do with how big God is. And he's on my side. So he goes out, and he doesn't take a sword or a shield. He just simply takes this small sling and five small stones. And right there he takes on Goliath and he defeats him and all of Israel cheers him on. Then we learn that there comes a time when the, the priest, the prophet in the nation of the time, he comes to David and he says, you are the man. You are the person that God's chosen to be the next king of Israel. There was already a king, a king by the name of Saul, but this prophet says, God has determined that you are gonna be the next king after Saul in Israel. So this guy's life, David's life, is definitely kind of moving up and to the right. Now he finds himself in, in Saul's palace and uh, things are going really well. Saul thinks he's amazing. The people love David. But as time goes on, Saul starts to realize just how much everyone loves this kid called David. And Saul, we read, actually starts to go a little bit crazy. He starts to get angry. He starts to get jealous of David. So much so that there comes a time where Saul tries to kill David. He throws a spear with the goal of killing David. David avoids the spear, 
And with a few of his close friends, he manages to escape and flees for his life. And for months following that, you can read in the Old Testament, King Saul pursued David and his friends. They were always just a few steps behind, but their goal was to catch him and to kill him. So we're going to pick up this morning, um, a few months into this story, of a time when David is running for his life. And we can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gede. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Yep, the Bible tells us right there that Saul went into a cave to poop. That's basically what it's saying, okay? But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity. David's men whispered to him, today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the King. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. We get this crazy insight here into the mind of David. He knows that Saul is insane. He knows that one day he will be Saul's successor. He will be the king of Israel. And yet still, he trusts God enough to know that for some reason, God hasn't brought Saul's reign to an end yet. This guy is crazy. He's insane. He's doing some terrible things. And yet still, God has chosen to leave him in control. So how dare I? Who, who, how can I be the one that would choose to attack the Lord's anointed one, the person the Lord himself has chosen? So in that moment, even though he feels like he should have every right to take this guy out, he says, no. He is still God's man on the throne. He is still the leader that God's appointed. And even though I don't agree with him, I don't like him, he's trying to kill me, I still am going to honor and respect the fact that he's God's chosen man. So he lets Saul live. He lets Saul go. And then as Saul is leaving the cave to go back to the troops, David comes out behind him and says, hey, Saul. I'm sure he just whipped around. He's like, just minutes ago, you were this close to the blade of my knife. I could have ended your life, but I didn't. Because I want you to know that I'm not out to kill you. I'm not your enemy. And listen to how Saul responds. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry and he said to David, you are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you've been amazingly kind to me, for when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. You showed self-control. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. You know, the Bible never tells us what would have happened if David had killed Saul. 
So I was thinking, you know, as I was preparing this message, what, how would things be different? How would it be different if, if David hadn't used self-control, if David had just said, nope, that's it, I'm killing him for who he is and what he's trying to do to me? I think there would have been a few outcomes had David not used self-control. The, third, the first would have been the moral and spiritual implications. Killing Saul, who was an anointed king, would have been seen as a grave sin. It would have been a violation of God's commandments. David was a man who was known to be uh, a follower of God, a man after God's own heart. And such an act of killing Saul would have tarnished his reputation and spiritual standing. I think there would have been guilt and consequences. I think from that moment on, David would always struggle with the psychological implications of what he did when he took matters into his own hands and killed King Saul, even though he knew he shouldn't do it. I think there would have been a loss of leadership example. David's rise to his position as the future king wasn't just due to his, his military prowess, it was his reputation as a good and honorable leader. And I think if word had got out that he killed Saul, his, his image as this righteous, merciful leader would have been tarnished forever. I even think that had David killed Saul, it could have changed the course of history. There could have been an alternative historical path. And I think David said, God, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know why this guy is still the leader. He seems to be a terrible person. But I do believe that even with him at the helm, even with this terrible leader in control, you have a plan for Israel, for the people of Israel, for this kingdom that you can only accomplish with him as the king. Maybe it's some political alliances. Maybe it's some, some areas that Saul will take us to. But, but I don't want to change the course of history by doing something that I shouldn't do. So let's just recap those four things. Let's look at them all together. The moral and spiritual implications, the guilt and consequences, the loss of leadership example, the alternative historical path. All of those, any or all of those, could have come to pass had it not been for David exercising self-control. And I want us to see that this morning because I think sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where we know we should use some self-control, but we don't. And we justify it by thinking it's just something small. It won't make a big difference. But when we look at the life of David, it could have had a huge change in history. It could have had a huge outcome if he hadn't have exercised self-control. So what can we learn this morning from David? I don't want you leaving here this morning thinking, Dave, great message. That was really good. If I ever find myself in a cave being pursued by a, a terrible king and 3,000 of his men, I'll know exactly how to behave. I think we can learn some lessons from David that would apply in our lives. The first thing that I see when I read about David's situation is when the heat is up, take a breath. When the heat is up, take a breath. When the heat is up, count to 10. When the heat is up, pause before you do the very next thing you're gonna do. Because if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes as we look back in our lives, some of the choices that we're not the most proud of happened when the heat was up. In the heat of the moment, we did something where we're like, man, if I could redo that, I would do that differently. Because the truth is, there were many times in David's life where he exercised great self-control. 
There were times when he was out in the fields watching sheep. Every now and again, he might have to fight off a wild animal, but these were times where he could just, just sit in God's creation. Many of the Psalms, the songs of praise that David wrote, he wrote in the fields because he had all this time just alone with creation. We know that he killed Goliath. He was at the top of his game. Everyone in Israel was cheering. What a great man you are, David. In those moments, I'm sure his self-control was very high because it wasn't really being tested. But the story we just read was how David did in the area of self-control when it was being tested, when the king was pursuing him, when he was trying to kill him. The truth is, this isn't the best of illustrations. There's not really been any point in my message so far where I've just thought, I can't take it anymore. I've got to eat this in front of you all. It just isn't the best time to eat it. You know, it wouldn't be really appropriate to just stop speaking and you have to sit there for a minute just watching me uh, enjoy my Cadbury's Flake Bar. But tomorrow morning, when I'm sat in my office, if I'd made the decision tomorrow morning, I am not going to eat any chocolate today. And around about 10.30, I'm having my mid-morning cup of tea. And I bring it back to my office. And I'm drinking. I'm thinking, you know what would go really nicely with a cup of tea right now? A little snack. And right there, screaming at me on the table, is this Cadbury's Flake. That's the heat of the moment. That's when I really have to exercise self-control. And many of us uh, might find ourselves in situations where any other time of the day, we're great, but something happens. And here is where we have to really exercise self-control. It could be when your flight is delayed for the third time, when the service at the restaurant or the shop you're in is terrible, when the joking around with that coworker is starting to become just a little bit too flirtatious, when you know you should call it a night, but your friend is staying, just stay, have another drink. When your kids are driving you crazy. For some of you, the heat is up. Self-control is put to its greatest test when you're running late and everyone on the road just seems to be driving awfully. I heard a story this week of a little boy who was out driving with his mum, and, and he said, Mommy, why is it that the idiots are only on the road on the days that daddy drives? Good question. <laughs> it's easy when the heat is up to lose control. So this morning, it's not how is your self-control. This morning is how is your self-control when the heat is up. One of the wisest men who ever lived, a guy by the name of Solomon, uh, he wrote a couple of books. He wrote a few books in the Old Testament. A couple of them were Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Um, listen to this, what he said in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9. Control your temper, for anger labels you a fool. That's what it looks like to have discipline, to control your temper, because anger simply labels you a fool. He said this in Proverbs 16, verse 32, better to be patient than powerful, better to have self-control than to conquer a city. David uh, Solomon's saying, listen, people identify power as somebody who can conquer a city, someone who's powerful. But the reality is, I think the most powerful people I know are those who are patient, those who have mastered self-control. That's where the true power lies. Sometimes we need to take a breath. We need to count to 10. We need to do whatever it takes to stop us from doing something rash in the heat of the moment that we'll later regret. And here's the second thing. I learn when I look at David's situation. First, when the heat is up, 
to pause, to take a breath, to not act rashly. The second thing, and I think this is amazing, you can be right and still be wrong. (laughs) You can be in the right. You can be right in your thinking, but you can still act wrongly. You can still lose self-control and do something wrong, even though in your heart of hearts, you justify your actions because you were in the right. David's men are whispering to him, you should just kill him. God is in this. There would be so many ways for David to justify this. That Saul's crazy. I'm going to be doing God a favor. I'm going to be the next king anyway. There There were so many ways that David could say, I would be right to kill this man in this cave right now. But he knew that even though he felt like he was right, it would still be wrong. Sometimes I think we lack self-control in a situation because in our minds, we're justifying our actions. We're justifying the rightness of what we're doing. He started it. That's why I, 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 I shouted at him. That's why I argued with him because he started it. I'm the customer. I'm paying for this meal. I have every right to, to lose my self-control in this situation. I'm justified in my response, even when my response might hurt others was right. I think self-control is choosing to not do the wrong thing, even when in our minds we can find a way of convincing ourselves that it's the right thing. That's what self-control looks like. So let me give you one last verse here as a conclusion to send you away with here this morning. Because we've talked a lot about this in the fruits of the Spirit, and I want us to make sure that we remember that, that when Paul was talking about this, he was talking about the fruits of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. They are fruits of the Spirit. They're not fruits of the self, fruits of our own strength, fruits of our determination. They're fruits of the Spirit. And I can't think of a better one to, to remember this in than self-control. Because the danger is, we'll leave here this morning thinking, I, myself, have to do better in this area. But if we're only ever going to rely on ourselves, we'll always fall short of where we could potentially be. Because Jesus said in John 15, verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If anyone remains joined to me and I to him, he will bear a lot of fruit. You wanna see that fruit of the spirit in your life? You need to stay joined to Jesus because you can't do anything without me, Jesus is saying. You can try. You can try to to have more love. You can try and experience more joy. You can try and find that peace and that patience. You can even try really hard to have self-control. But the reality is you can't do these without me. I am the vine. You are the branches. And if you stay connected to me, that's where the life comes for the fruit to grow. So my prayer for all of us here this morning especially in the area of self-control, is that we would say, stay so close to Jesus, say, stay so connected to the vine that we don't need self-control from ourselves, that Jesus will give us the control that we need over ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words of Paul, that even though he was writing them to a, a, an audience, a church 2,000 years ago, they are still so relevant to us today. God, I pray that uh, with all these fruits, but especially self-control, that we would remember that um, 
we need to stay as attached and as close to the vine as possible. For everyone here this morning, Lord, if there are people here today who are followers of Jesus, I pray they never forget that you are the source. Lord, if there are people here today who haven't yet made a decision to follow you, I pray, Lord, that they would, they would realize that you are just dying to have a relationship with them, that if you will step towards him, if, they, if these folks will step towards you this morning, Jesus, that you will give them all the power and the resources to see their life change, to see these fruits grow. So help us in this, we pray, Jesus. Amen.